take a deep breath and remember there's a power breathing you. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation, and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. I've started telling you the story of how I met my spiritual teacher in France and the choice I was faced with after a week in his presence to say yes to my soul or to run away, to step through the portal that had opened up before me, knowing intuitively that all of the hell in me was going to be unleashed or to go back to the relative safety of the known I knew that this was a critical moment for my soul that had been called forth from within, and and it demanded an answer. It was really the answer to a question that had been profoundly uh, rooted in me and, and asked from a very deep place, and here I was given the answer, and now I had to do something. So throughout the week that I spent with him, there was this intense pressure building in me that I knew I couldn't deny. I had asked for it somehow, somewhere in me, and now it was here. This had all actually started about five months before, in the fall, when I had been to Vancouver for another yoga training. I was um, I was already a teacher, but I was uh, ticking the first of many boxes on my way to completing the requirements to reach the highest level of teacher excellence, because that's what I thought I was doing. That was why I signed up for the training in France in the first place, at least on the conscious level. See, whatever level of consciousness we're at is the way that we see the world. And that's fine, because how could it be otherwise? I saw yoga at that time as another ladder I could climb, like everything else. A vehicle for personal accomplishment with a certificate at the end that would legitimize me and enhance my identity. And I was desperately looking for identity enhancement. (laughs) Flailing about as I was at the time in the attempt to give my life meaning more desperate every day as my acting career emptied itself of energy, authenticity, direction, vitality. I had said no to the path that's commonly taken by many women. I had no children to pour into. I was only living for myself and my back was up against the wall. I'd failed to find enough comfort, security, safety, recognition, or any reassuring sense of identity or at-homeness in my choices. But I was extremely resistant to making a change because that was like being wrong or admitting defeat. And the ego hates that. It hates that. So I was very prideful and vain about my identity as an actor, about my choices. But more and more, I felt as if I was being spun out of that world by centrifugal force, no matter how much I tried to hold on. You know, it's like that ride at the at the fair, you know, where the swings spin out further and further and you end up being practically horizontal 
as you swing around. It's what I felt like I was, you know, hanging on to everything by my, by my nails, clutching, you know, felt like everything was against me and I had to fight for every gain, which I then was jealously guarded. It was exhausting and unsustainable as a way to be, um, but giving it up felt like a failure and I was full of tension and dread about it. So in Vancouver, I attended this kundalini yoga training. I was already teaching kundalini yoga at this point, like I said, but I was moving up to level two, like in a video game, next level. And uh, one of my fellow students at that training was another young woman who had recently been through a big career change. She'd been a successful stockbroker on Wall Street and pivoted to being a full-time intuitive healer out west somewhere. Now that's a 180. We were placed in a small group together during the training, so I had a chance to observe her, and I was so impressed by her self-possession and her courage. She was different. I mean, she was obviously highly intelligent, but also extremely intuitive with visionary gifts. She even mentioned being able to see trends in the future, and I replied jokingly that that must have come in handy in the financial world, and with no trace of arrogance, she replied, extremely. She seemed really plugged into the field, so I decided to ask her for a healing session, which she gave me during that week of our training. I guess I asked her for a healing because I, well, I felt like I needed some help. She came to the apartment where I was staying, and I watched with fascination as she unselfconsciously wrapped her head up in piles of turban material to form a sort of open-ended, upside-down cone shape. I thought, okay, and I laid on the floor and she did energy work on me for about half an hour before receiving intuitive guidance for me. Knowing next to nothing, let's say, about the details of my life or the questions that I'd been struggling with for years, she told me that a cycle was at an end. And I remember that she said, I see you on stages but there's stages of a different kind than you've been used to. You'll be using all the gifts you were given, but at a different level. That was not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> uh, speaking of um, what you hear, um, I'm still recovering from a little bit of a cold. So if you hear the, the wheeze, um, there was nothing I could do about it. It's just in terms of the timing of our recording. So please forgive the extra throatiness. So that was what she told me, and it wasn't what I was hoping for. And actually, I had no idea what it meant. So she counseled me to let go of how I thought things were supposed to look in my life and stop trying to squeeze my life into the shape that I had been insisting on. You're being pushed off the wheel, she said. You think you know best, but you don't. It's easier if you surrender and go willingly. Whew, well, that was hard to hear. I cried for a couple of weeks after that, bitter tears of defeat and disappointment. It was the ego that was having a, a tantrum. I could hear the familiar refrain of my complaints. I wanted what I wanted. Why doesn't God just let me express my gifts the way I want to? Why is the universe withholding from me? Why, why, why? You ever heard me say that why is the least powerful question you can ask? Well, that was the only question I had. Knocking at the door, wanting to know reasons, as Rumi said. 
And the conclusion was, I must be unworthy. I must have done something wrong. But either way, I'm pissed. I want things my way. It's not fair. And so on. Well, that that was the refrain that I had been living with for years. But then, miraculously, and I can't explain it, something just broke. Something just let go. It was like finally accepting a breakup with someone who never loved you the way that you wanted them to. After so many years of trying to change them, hoping they would come around, manipulating, seducing, controlling, walking away in a huff, reconciling and raging all over again, there was just no more energy to fight. Spent of self-pity. I finally surrendered my pride and I finally stopped resisting the direction of the current that seemed to be pulling me away from who I thought I was supposed to be. And I felt something fall away from me like a layer of eggshell or ego shell. <laughs> That'd be a better way to put it. It was like recovering from the delirium of a long illness and returning to lucidity. It was like being a werewolf who had turned back into a human being. I could remember running around in the dark, howling at the moon, feeling tormented and hunted. I could remember the insanity, but I knew I wasn't going to turn back into a werewolf again. That part of my insanity had come to an end. And I knew that never again would I suffer from the terrible arrogance and defensiveness and oversensitivity that had plagued me for so many years and I had kept hidden because I was ashamed of it for so many years. Even if I continued to be an actor, I knew that that was gone. It just was emptied out. And I remember telling my husband, who had sat through many an emotional tirade of outrage and self-pity, bless his heart, when I didn't get what I wanted or what I felt I deserved, I said, that will never happen again. That's over. It's just gone. And with the absence of that armoring that had always been there, I felt like those tender green shoots you see in the springtime when they first start poking their heads out of the snow were vulnerable and softer and more open and willing to not know what I was anymore in the same way. The image of the werewolf is significant, I think. It's symbolic of the ravenousness of the ego, which is never satisfied. The lower aspects of our nature and the animal instincts and impulses, which still live in the amygdala, the old reptilian brain. The ego may have been tremendously refined through the intellect in human beings, but that only makes it more dangerous, not only because it evolved more efficient and diabolical ways to keep its grip on humanity, but because you don't necessarily recognize how it's operating in you, even if you're already somewhat evolved. It's so much a part of the, the background of things. And if you don't understand its structure and the mechanisms by which it operates and stays in power, it's easy to confuse it with you 
In fact, the only reason it is still alive in any of us is because it has tricked us into identification with it. Very smart. We think those impulses of our lower nature make us a bad person. And we condemn ourselves for behaviors that are driven by the ego as if they were personal. We make an identity out of it. And we carry a lot of unconscious guilt. We're very unsure deep down that we deserve good things. You know what I'm talking about? It's key to realize that the ego is not personal. Everyone has the same ego. It's part of the human condition and it manifests the same behaviors in every human being. The only difference from person to person is the degree of identification with the ego and the content of the ego, right? The ego is a structure and then the content, which is the story and the particulars of your life, that varies from person to person. The egoic mind is a residual of the earliest and most primitive forms of life on this planet, which were programmed for survival. They had to be, because otherwise they wouldn't have survived long enough to evolve, right? If the purpose is evolution, then the earliest to most primitive forms of life have to be programmed to survive so that they can evolve. So they had no awareness. We're talking about protoplasm here, you know, but it's programmed to recoil from something noxious, to preserve its own life, to survive. It doesn't know anything. It doesn't, it doesn't aware. It isn't conscious in the sense of being self-aware. And therefore, it's also ignorant of its divine origin. Everything comes from one source, including the most basic primitive forms of life. So protoplasm, it doesn't know where it came from. It's programmed to survive. And over billions of years of evolution, as life forms became more and more sophisticated, the basic programming for survival remained, but it also evolved and was elaborated. But the core remained the same. Survival is me, me, me. It's narcissistic, right? Me, me, me. It's not other directed unless the other is a threat or a meal. So fast forward to human beings, and it's easy to see that we're just beginning to become aware of this me, 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 and move out of it. And it's only a very, very small percentage of the population even still. We're learning to overcome that original programming that put survival first and transcend the ego. But as highly sophisticated as human beings are, with the addition of the prefrontal cortex, and in individuals who are spiritually oriented and etheric brain and a different brain physiology, yes, this is true, the amygdala, the animal brain, doesn't go away. It's still there. <laughs> it's still there. It still contains the original program. We just learn to bypass it and to not make our decisions from there anymore. It's still part of us, but we can learn to recognize it, to feel the impulse that arises from there. Driving often provides an opportunity to observe that and even treat it like a pet who doesn't know any better. And this survival programming believes itself to be the author and the source of your life. It's like the software believing that it invented the computer. So that's the structure of the ego, which is the same in everyone. 
It wants to draw you into continual identification with it and keep you looking out there to fill a bottomless void. That's the hunger, the ravenousness of the ego. It doesn't want you to discover that the source of infinite power is within you because then it dies. So it claims that power for itself. It claims the authorship for your very existence for itself. And it says, without me, you wouldn't be here. And in a limited sense, we can see that that's true. But it is not the author of life. It is just a program. And therefore, it has no ultimate reality. Like anything that has outlived its usefulness, it has to be let go. Right, so structure, the structure of the ego, same in everybody, and then the content of the ego, different for everyone. That's your story, your circumstances, your psyche. You know, it was only many years later that I could see that the arrogance and the entitlement that I'd struggled with as an actor were a defense against being rejected and hurt when things didn't go my way. I saw that as a rejection by God. That's, that's the definition of a projection from the point of view of perception, which is I'm not enough. I need to prove I'm special. I need recognition so that I can feel loved and approved of, and then I'll be safe. Then I'll finally be at home, right? If you look at that, it's really still about survival at the core of it. That's the classic pattern of the ego. It's roving. It's looking outside for what's missing inside, looking for food to survive because it does not know its source. Through billions of years of evolution, the elaboration of that basic drive may make it harder to recognize, but it's still there. So I think what happened there in that week in Vancouver was the acceptance that self-love was no longer going to depend on externals. There was a letting go of the need for outside approval or recognition to feel validated, to even feel like I was alive. See, that's emptiness. When all your references are outside of yourself, what's in here to prove to yourself that you're real? The the disconnection from source is the feeling of alienation. You never feel at home anywhere because you're not at home within yourself. Now, you can never be truly disconnected from source because that's an impossibility, but you can believe you are. And that belief is powerful enough to create the illusion of disconnection, the feeling of alienation. From the belief in disconnection from source comes the get mentality. You have nothing, you have no power, you don't exist, so you have to get stuff out there to survive and validate your existence. There's no understanding yet that we're meant to be the generator, not the consumer. The source of our existence, which is the source of all existence, provides everything we need through infinite number of channels, and there's nothing to get, only to receive. Right, so I'm talking about human beings here. We, we have this capacity. We are made in the image of the creator. And this is what differentiates us from every other form of life on the planet currently is that we have five elements. We are uh, constituted of five elements, including the element of ether. 
And ether is space. It is that which allows us to be self-aware, to know that we are alive, to question the source of our existence, and to connect with that source, and to create as the source creates. We are made in the image of the creator. We are therefore generators, creators ourselves. But we mostly haven't understood that or understood the implications of it. Because the ego in us does not recognize any source of survival beyond itself. And as it has no intrinsic energy, no life of its own, it's just a program, it has to keep renewing itself through us, through endless getting, through identification, through what is gotten to build a persona, to build a life, to build an identity. And it juices emotional energy from us to stay alive. So letting go of external references as your go-to for who you are and how you are is a major reorientation of the compass. You understand? If you go from looking outside for your sense of self and you drop that and you allow yourself to not know what you are and you begin to reorient towards an inner reference, well, that changes everything. And that reorientation happened that week in Vancouver. Rewind a bit further, even before going to Vancouver, I had committed to a contract at the Stratford Festival for the following season, but it was an agreement that I'd made from a really different headspace, the get mindset. I need to work, I need to do something, you know, I need something to validate my existence. I gotta keep going here, keep going, put one foot in front of the other, make it work. As the ravening werewolf in me died that winter, I began to have misgivings about having said yes for the wrong reasons, but I thought, well, it's too late now. Little did I know what was waiting for me in France or how it would change everything, change my priorities completely. After my teacher's feet went by in the walking meditation, I saw his face for the first time on the stage and I listened to his voice. Every pore of my being drank in his presence. And I realized that as many hours of yoga teacher trainings I had been through over the past couple years, including my time in India, it was the first time I had heard spiritual wisdom from a teacher of Kundalini yoga. Everyone else had been, and I'm, you know, I worked with some of the best teachers and I'm not putting anybody down. Everybody's teaching from their own level. But I understood that everyone else had been teaching about yoga, postures, lifestyle, and frankly, rules of behavior for teachers. That never sat well with me because it's dogmatic. It's like saying that because you teach yoga now, you have to be something that you're not. (laughs) You have to be something that you haven't yet become. You have to be... mm, pure and there's a lot of misinterpretation about what that means and uphold an example for students 
Well, if you ask me, that's the perfect recipe for a massive spiritual ego, and you're setting yourself up for a fall. The teacher who sat in front of me now was fully human, bluntly and often humorously exposing the ego's superficiality and hypocrisy, popping the balloons of illusion and self-delusion, and defending our absolute right to mess it up, as he says, while offering a space of total acceptance and unconditional love. This was yoga, and it had nothing to do with postures or mantras or rules or anything I had known as yoga previously. There are no rules in yoga, he often said, and I hung on his every word, aware of truth flowing through me as rivers of tears, like a sacred healing balm. That seems to be all I did that week, was just cry continuously. I didn't even know why I was crying. We, as we become spiritually aware and we desire spiritual evolution, we grow our capacity to recognize truth when we hear it. Even though he is French, he taught in English, English being the language of Europe and this being an international school with people from all over Europe and even in Russia. Uh, Two translators into French and German kept up with his teaching, which often accelerated to a dizzying pace as he was carried away by inspiration. I fixated on the French translator who was excellent and drank in the translation into French of spiritual principles as if I needed to hear these words of truth and love in that language even more than in English. It seemed to heal some old memory of cruelty as if that language had been used in the past as a weapon to cut me into little pieces and it was now putting me back together again with new words in a new frequency. It was blissful. It was like being picked up off a battlefield with all of your wounds and broken bones and and being taken to the the healing place and having all of your wounds dressed lovingly and all of your pain taken away by angels. I counted the days of the training, savoring every moment and dreading the end and my eventual return to real life, in quotes, I had bonded with a handful of other students and I knew everyone was coming back in June for the next module. I couldn't bear the thought of everyone coming back and not being there. I couldn't bear the thought of not seeing my teacher for at least another year. For even though I had only just met him, I knew he was my teacher. I knew that I had found him again and that he had been my teacher before. I remembered the love and respect I had always had for him, and I felt a profound sense of gratitude, humility, and wonder that life had brought us back together again. After a few days in the training, I worked up the courage to say something to him. As we all took a break and he headed out of the yoga room, he passed by me and I stepped into his path with one word, maître. It means master or teacher. No one else called him that, but it was what came out. He stopped with a gentle chuckle at the quaintness of my form of address, no doubt. 
Thank you, was all I could manage. There was nothing to say. There was no way to repay the gift which was freely given. Any words were superfluous. But my heart was so full of gratitude that I had to say something and I wanted to put myself in front of him to remind him of who I was. Like, hey, it's me. Do you remember me? Do you recognize me? And I knew he saw me. Imagine, in spite of all my resistance, here I am, I thought to myself. In spite of the years of frustration, self-absorption, self-pity, despair, in spite of sadness and grief, loneliness and self-betrayal, in spite of being lost, here I am. In spite of all the ways I have led my life astray, fallen into every trap, and forgotten nearly everything that matters, here I am. I am redeemed. I am not forgotten. I am loved, and every hair on my head is counted. I've been led here, now, by a loving hand. And my life is just beginning when I thought it was ending telling you about it brings back all of those amazing feelings of wonder just like staggering wonder at the goodness of life and that's grace there was nothing I did to deserve this chance but there must have been enough karmic merit somewhere somehow to bring this potentiality into actuality to collapse this wave function and conditions were now favorable Grace is the step that God takes. You can't make it happen, and you can't plan for it. It comes from the nonlinear realms. It comes from another dimension. In the light of grace, we know our own innocence, and we feel the renewal of our own eternal spring. On the last day of the training, we had early morning sadhana, and then it was time for departure. We all milled about with our rucksacks and suitcases, hugging one another, exchanging information. And there was my teacher in the vaulted breakfast room, as natural in jeans as he had been in his teaching robes. I went up to thank him once again after having only said two words to him the whole week. As I approached, he radiated kindness. I love your smile, he said. I thanked him for everything and went into my story. I want so much to come back in June, but I have a contract that starts in two days and I don't, I don't know, you know, how I can get out of it. <laughs> this has been the most important week of my life and I can never go back to the way things were before and I don't, I don't know what to do. He looked at me and said, thank you for trusting us referring to himself and the other teachers who'd been there in support. And then he hugged me and said goodbye. The next day I was back in Canada, beginning my theater contract. It was that quick of a turnaround. But I was no longer the same person. When we're exposed to the frequency of a true teacher, it changes us. The energy field of unconditional love 
can uplift us by resonance and make a shift in perception possible. But we need to remain in the energy field until we're strong enough to radiate that frequency on our own. Right? This is the premise of 12-step groups, for example. They hold the field of unconditional love. doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how insane your life has become. It doesn't matter how low you've fallen. You'll always receive the support and the unconditional love and the unconditional acceptance, right? And that energy of the group, that premise, is extremely high frequency of love that makes transformation possible, but you need to remain in the field, right? Then the ego takes over and it's like, oh, I got this, I got this. Yeah, I don't need to go to the group anymore. <laughs> then get gotcha, right? And that's very often when people fall off the wagon or you know, go back to their old habits. And I'm talking about any kind of addiction. And we have many different kinds of addiction, some of which we don't recognize as addiction. So we need to remain in the energy field until we are strong enough, until we have enough spiritual power to radiate that frequency on our own. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't understand anything about it. I just knew that my life had changed, that there was no going back, and that the strongest yearning I had ever felt was throbbing in my chest and vibrating my being. Next time, I'll tell you about the big decision I had to make and the fear that I would never work again if I listened to my heart. And I'll tell you how and with whose help I found the courage to do just that. I'll see you next time. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.